Welcome to the St. Andrew's Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. You can connect with us online at www.gosaintandrew.com. As we already know from our study with the Gospel of Mark, the disciples struggle quite a bit with grasping Jesus' teachings. On the road to Jerusalem, Jesus describes to the disciples the events that will take place shortly. The Son of Man will be crucified, mocked, spit on, flogged, and raised up three days later. Plain as day, this is what is coming. But the disciples just don't seem to get it. Eagerly, James and John asked Jesus for a place of prominence beside Jesus who will sit on the throne. And Jesus says, that's not really how this works. Other leaders will lord over their followers like tyrants, but I came to serve you. And likewise, the greatest among you will give of themselves in service to all. Let's hear now the words from the Gospel of Mark. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, we are able. Then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their leaders, lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Let's join our voices together in singing the song we've been singing throughout this entire sermon series, I Want a House with a Crowded Table. Want a house with a crowded table and a place by the fire for everyone? Let us take on the world while we still are able and bring us back together when the day is done. And if we want a garden. We're gonna have to grow the seeds Plant a little happiness Let the roots run deep If it's love that we give And it's love that we reap If we want a garden We're gonna have to sow the seed And I 
I was 35 years old when I first had the chance to go to Washington, D.C. Many of you have been there. Some of you are from there. Many of you plan to go there someday. I don't know why it took me so long to get to D.C., but uh, I was invited uh, in my mid-30s to go speak at the seminary that we have there in D.C., and I planned a couple of days on the back end of that trip just to visit some of the sites and memorials uh, of that great city and walking the mall and visiting the landmarks and museums, having the chance to kneel at, in front of that Vietnam Memorial wall and trace my finger over my late uncle's name, Robert O'Bannon, I had no idea how the entire experience would, would be so powerful. I mean, it was, it was something that blew me away. I didn't expect it, but it, but it did. And it wasn't just because of the history that was made and honored that, uh, in D.C., but it was, I think, especially the fact that it honored the people who made the history that is America. Uh, in Washington, D.C., um, anybody who becomes a somebody seems to get a memorial of some kind in limestone or bronze. This was new to me coming from California at that time. Now, California, if you do something special or extraordinary, you might get a star, on a, on a sidewalk next to a pawn shop and a sewer grate. If you're really special, you might get somebody to, to do your likeness in wax and put you in a museum with other almost famous dead people. But, um, but in D.C., they use limestone. They use bronze to remember and honor important people. And they then enshrine them often in domes and surround them in hand-hewn pillars of stone and it's, it's, it's quite stunning and dramatic. And standing, uh, for example, in, in, front of the, in front of Lincoln, perched there on his throne, you can almost hear his heart beat for a unified America. You can almost hear and feel his heart break for the blood-stained soil of his land. Standing before Martin Luther King Jr., you can see in that timeless pose you can see in his eyes the, the vision from the mountaintop. Uh, you, can, you can hear his unfettered dream for justice and equality. Sitting next to that bench at the FDR memorial, sitting right next to FDR, you can, you can almost hear in your own ear his little soundbite sermons on the tyranny of evil. You can almost feel his deep compassion for America's poor and destitute after two days uh, in D.C., at the age of 35, I, I had this profound moment of revelation. I, like all these people from America's past, was, I was supposed to do something with my life. And at the age of 35, I had yet to make some contribution to the world. I was kind of living a small life in a big world full of really big needs. And so sitting on this park bench overlooking the reflecting pool... 
I resolved in that moment to do something about it, to do something great. I actually prayed to God in that moment, all right, God, I'm ready. Ready to do something great. Just, just put me to work. Just, just make me useful in some way. It was a really profound, poignant moment that was abruptly interrupted by somebody behind me tapping with their finger on my shoulder. And then hearing this raspy voice from behind me say, Hey buddy, can I have a swig of your Coke? And I turned around and there was this disheveled, uh, weather-beaten stranger dressed in rags. He had these wind-burned eyes and just a small handful of teeth still in his mouth. He looked like some Old Testament prophet. And I said, I'm sorry, did, did you say something? He said, yes. Can I have a swig of your Coke? Now, I had just been praying to God, right? Uh, help me do something great with my life, uh, something to, some great cause to make my big contribution. And then God showed up and tapped me on the shoulder. I handed him my Coke and he raised the bottle to his cracked lips and took a long guzzle off that bottle. And then he came up from air and had this sort of satisfying sigh. And then he tried to give his, the bottle back to me. And no, it's okay. You can, you can have it. Um, it's all yours. Searching for greatness, I met God one afternoon. It happens. Just as it happened to James and John in our story from Mark's gospel. These are two of the closest disciples that Jesus has. And in the story in Mark's gospel, they are searching looking for greatness. They're they're walking at the time with Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. This is important context. In the Gospel of Mark, there are 16 chapters, the first eight of which are spent in Galilee, documenting the ministry of Jesus in Galilee. The second eight are documenting the journey that Jesus takes from Galilee to Jerusalem where he will be crucified. And Jesus along the way tells them on three occasions on this road to Jerusalem that he will be mocked and scorned and falsely accused, wrongly convicted, and crucified. And this is the third time he's told them and the third time they have failed to understand. They are literally too blind to see the truth. He tells them three times. Now, in this story today, just preceding the story, Jesus heals a blind man. This story happens the next story right after. Jesus heals a blind man. You see what Mark is doing. Those who have no sight actually can see who Jesus is. Those who are gifted with sight have no idea who Jesus is. They're talking about thrones. And Jesus is talking about the cross. Greatness. Maybe this has something to do with the seductive illusion of success and glory. Jesus was a somebody. The disciples mostly were nobodies until they met Jesus and started following. And all these miracles, all the teachings, all the the healings, it made Jesus great, which made his circle of followers great as well. And on the way to Jerusalem, they assume that Jesus is going to assume a real earthly throne. That he's going to begin this new political administration in Israel. 
Which is why James and John interrupt this conversation about the cross and suffering. Uh, Jesus, they say, um, about that throne, we'd like you to do something for us. Uh, when you finally um, win the election and, uh, and you start making your cabinet appointments, we would like for the two of us to be at the top with you. Greatness. Carl Jung once said that we all walk in shoes too small for us. He left out the part that we all walk around with heads that are too big for us sometimes. Listen to the request. Jesus, we want you to do anything we ask of you. It is an astonishing request. It's so pathetically self-absorbed. There is just no way around this story. It's just, it's just ugly. Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Really? Some people think that Jesus is like this vending machine. You, you drop in your quarter, you get your blessing. Um, you do something great and you just have to ask for a reward. Um, Jesus asks James and John, you want me to do anything for you? Let me ask you this. Are you able to drink from the cup from which I drink? What is this cup business? It's an interesting metaphor. In the middle of this conversation, he's speaking about what is this cup Maybe the disciples are thinking, well, Psalm 23, maybe that's the cup, the, the one that is a cup runneth over. This idea of blessings that when you are, are with God, you, you live this life of blessing, you just drink from it, and it, it's blessings always. But this is not the cup that Jesus is speaking about. In fact, in just a couple of chapters after this story, we meet Jesus again in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's just moments before his betrayal and arrest. And he prays to God, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. What is that cup? It's the cup of sacrifice and suffering. And so Jesus asks them, are you able to drink from that cup? And they have no idea. Oh, Jesus, just give us the cup. We'll drink it all at once. We'll guzzle it. It's full of blessings. Just give us the cup. And they have no idea. We assume that it's the cup of blessing, the cup of glory. Do something big, you get blessed for it. Give me the cup, Jesus. We'll drink it all down at once. But what happens when Jesus gives us that cup and we take it to our lips and we begin to drink and we discover that we thought it was going to be a raspberry mango, but it's bitter lemonade sometimes. Don't get me wrong, it's not always that way. Following Jesus doesn't need to make us miserable, but sometimes it will make us suffer. Sometimes that cup is a cup of blessing, and sometimes it's the cup of sacrifice. There's no chugging that cup. You can't just drink it all at once. The cup that Jesus gives us is a cup from which we can only take little sips, one at a time, over the course of our entire lives. Jesus once taught, the one who is faithful in little is faithful in much. And he understood that when we attend to the little things over and over again over the course of our lives, that is the evidence of a faithful life. Jesus here does this great flip-flop of greatness. It's not the one who chugs that cup all at once. 
It's the one who drinks from it little by little, whenever needed. While others are looking for greatness, Jesus calls us to drink from the Jesus cup, to look at the world and to say, how can I help? To look at others and say, with whom can I stand with who have nobody to stand with? Who are those in the world who have no voice? How can I speak for them and join their struggle? There's a name for people like that in this world. People who take this cup of sacrifice and drink from it little by little, believing that in drinking of this cup, we do something redemptive for the world. We call such people allies. Allies. And an ally is someone who, they they come in all shapes and sizes and, and different forms, Take a moment right now, look back over the course of your life. Can you name at least a person or two who used their power and influence, their position, to to give you a leg up? Maybe it was a boss or a supervisor who uh, believed in you so much they put in a good word for you and you got the promotion that you wouldn't otherwise have gotten. Maybe it was a mentor or a teacher who saw such promise in you that they made the call or wrote the, ma- the note to, to get you on a path that otherwise wouldn't have been open to you. Maybe it, was, maybe it was somebody you don't even know. Like somebody who, long before you were even born, endowed a scholarship that years later, decades later, got you through school. These are allies. We all have them. For me, it includes a youth pastor in high school, a a professor in college, a a president in my seminary, people who, they could have helped a million different people in a million different ways, but they chose to help me in very particular ways. I've come to understand over the years then that I too, by virtue of such factors as my position, my influence, my power, uh, my my station in life, I, I have the ability to leverage that for others, especially those who are facing struggles and obstacles that they can't get around on their own. We call these people allies because they willingly drink from the cup. They use their influence, they use their position to help others overcome obstacles. And Jesus was an ally. He was an ally to, the, to women and children, to widows and orphans, to the poor. He was an ally to those who were outside the sphere of religious influence and excluded from religion. He was an ally even to the enemies and adversaries of his day. And we have on our stage a a cross, a symbol, the ultimate symbol of allyship ever known in history. Jesus calls us out of our search for greatness toward connections of allyship in the world. He says, take this cup and drink from it slowly. You can't drink from it all because in this cup is the world's suffering. Will you dare to drink from it, sip by sip? For whom are you an ally in the world? I know some people who feel called to be allies for people of color. I know others who feel called to be allies for the LGBTQ family. People who want to be allies to the physically or emotionally or mentally disabled. I know people who are are, are allies for foster kids, for addicts, for the homeless and alcoholics. And for some, 
to be an ally may mean that you go march on Washington or march at the state capitol. For others, it, it may mean that you write a check or you write a letter or you stand with those and just hear their story or you use your platform to center other voices that aren't being heard. We're all called to be allies in this world, every single one of us. So let me just give you three very quick tips on how to be a good one. And the first is put your rear end where your heart is. That is to say, you can't be an ally from a distance. You have to join the struggle of the other. Which means that if you want to be an ally for people of color, there may be times, and there should always be times, where you need to speak up and intervene when you hear something or you see something that is not just, that's inappropriate. It may mean that you'll have to question or challenge policies or decisions or systems that are unjust, that are leaving some people out, and and to do that in a way that says, this impacts me directly too. What I've learned is you may have to fearlessly confront your own biases and prejudices when they come up, when you don't expect it, when when things leak out of your conscience and, and you think, this is not right. Or when somebody else says, I think it, I heard you say something, and this is how it impacted me. These are scary things. If you want to be an ally for the earth or for the environment, it may mean that you take inventory of your habits of consumption, your own patterns of living and eating and driving. To be an ally for the hungry might mean that you begin by going a whole day without eating so that in your belly you can feel the struggle of others. If you want to be an ally for those who are new to the faith or those who are struggling with their faith or those who have given up on their faith, maybe it begins by you inventorying your own list of doubts and your own, your own questions that can't be answered. Jesus reminds us from the cross that redeeming humanity is not a cause. It's a, it's a commitment that costs something. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited or grasped, but emptied himself. And what did he empty himself of? Power. And privilege because he had enough of it to give away. A second tip for being a good ally is to talk less and listen more. In other words, amplify the voices of those who aren't being heard, the voices that have been sidelined and marginalized, spoken over or muted. One of my favorite stories in Mark's gospel is the day that Jesus heals what's described as a man who is deaf and mute. And Jesus takes his fingers and puts them in the man's ears and then he touches the man's tongue and he says, be opened. And it's not just his ears that are open, but his mouth. Jesus gives voice to the voiceless. It's a reminder that the voiceless don't need us to speak for them. They need us to be quiet and to give them space to be heard. And so we ask in all of our circles, at work, in our neighborhoods, 
in our uh, church, wherever, what voices aren't being heard here? How might my voice be dominating in ways that limit or marginalize others? Who do I need to center? And how do I need to decenter my voice? One final tip for being a good ally is to leverage your privilege. You may not realize this. You may not want to hear it because it's so politically infused these days. But you each have privilege. More power and privilege than you know. And you shouldn't be embarrassed or shamed by it. You shouldn't feel guilty for it. But this is what I've learned in my life. I've learned that if you are male, if you're white, if you're straight, if you're married, if you're an American, if you're wealthy, if you're educated, you can move through spaces in this world a little easier than those who are not male and those who are poor and those who are people of color. You you see, this is not meant to make you feel guilty. It's meant, Jesus says to you, you have a gift and you can leverage that gift to give voice to other people. Don't feel bad about it. Don't feel like it's judgment. It, It just means that Jesus looks at you and says, can you drink from this? Because the world is suffering. Can you drink from this cup and take some of that on yourself? Great people use their position and their power and their influence not to take more, but to give to others. Our takeaways for today, Jesus holds before us his cup and invites each of us to drink from it one sip at a time. And to belong to Jesus is to become an ally in the struggle for liberation. And true greatness is evidenced by elevating others. Amen.
in the name of love, in the name of love, we fight for hope and peace, in the name of love, in the name of love, we want to Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. And if you'd like more information, go to www.gosaintandrew.com. See you next week.